The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. Well, good morning. My name is Ben, and I'm on staff here at Restoration. We're glad you're here worshiping with us in person or online uh, as we um, are going through Romans 8 together. Uh, Before we get into that, Mark Gregory, the handsome feller that uh, you saw earlier, uh, yesterday went to Presbytery, and if you don't know what Presbytery is, that's okay. Uh, It's uh, the kind of uh, denominational ties that we have and live in and we love. Uh, gathering of the regional churches, and he went uh, for um, uh, to be ordained, and uh, he passed. So, Mark Gregory. It is like the NFL combine and two days combined. It is not fun, and he did great. So, uh, he'll be an assistant pastor and installed in a few weeks, and so if you see him uh, give him a warm hello and hug, and he and his wife Holly and Jude and Evie, their kids, are just the best. So we're glad to have them here, and you'll be hearing from him a lot more too. Um, well, this morning we're kind of in the midst and nearing the end of our sermon series, Sanity by the Savior. We're, we're looking at what does the empty tomb mean? If Jesus did this thing on Easter where he walked out of the tomb, what does that mean for you now? And actually, what we would offer is that he brings sanity in the wake of his resurrection. He takes the lives that we have marked by insanity and injects truth into them that calibrates us. And this morning, we'll see sanity and weakness. Sanity and weakness. Last week, we looked at sanity and suffering and pain. This, uh, this week, sanity and weakness. And uh, I was raised by um, parents who had the most amazing taste in music. Amazing. And so uh, one of those was no one less than uh, the mustached man, Philadelphia native Jim Croce himself. And in Jim Croce's song, Operator, if you don't know it, go listen to it. Uh, he began to talk about how he uh, has lost his girlfriend. And actually, the person who he's lost his girlfriend to is his, his old best friend. And they've run off together and they've gone to Los Angeles. And now he's calling the operator and telling operator, plug me in to talk to them. And I'm going to tell them that what they did to me didn't overcome me, that I'm fine. Actually, I don't even care anymore. So he says this, he says, operator, could you help me place this call? See the number on the matchbook, it's old and faded. She's living in LA with my best old ex-friend, Ray, a guy she said she knew well and sometimes hated. Isn't that the way they say it goes? But let's forget all that. And give me the number if you can find it. All so that I can call just to tell them I'm fine. And to show I've overcome the blow. I've learned to take it well. I only wish my words could convince myself that it just wasn't real. But that's not the way it feels. For us in our pain and our suffering, and this morning certainly in our weakness, we long to sing the first half of that chorus. I'm fine. 
I'm fine, and actually I'm, I'm calling to show you I've overcome the blow and I've learned to take it well. I'm all good. And yes, the reality is that we're saying those truths to us, hoping and longing for those truths to be true, all the while they're not. Because the second half of that course is more true than the first half. And the second half tells us, I only wish the words would convince myself that it just wasn't real. And at the weakest moments in our lives, oftentimes we long, the words we say would convince us that this station in life just wasn't real. And what we see this morning is the topic of prayer and weakness and how the Spirit is all for us there, in us, prayer and weakness. And what I would offer you this morning, because Paul's offering us today, is that actually there is no substitute or shortcut for prayer. To live the Christian life, it must be filled with prayer. Andrew Murray actually says, this theologian says, it's one of the greatest sins is prayerlessness. And I'm not here to slap your hand if that's something that is reality for you. But actually together, what I think Paul wants us to lean into is know that everything Jesus has purchased for you is on the table. And one of the most beautiful things is prayer in our weakness. So this morning, we'll look at three quick things. We'll look at where, what, and why. All around prayer. Where is prayer? What is prayer? Why prayer? Where, what, why? But as we talk about the Spirit who helps us pray in Romans 8, let's go to that same Spirit in prayer and ask Him to do much with everything we're coming and expecting for Him to do. Let's pray. Lord, as we come in with the mirages uh, that have led us to this moment, fragmented people and all, would you this very day by the power of your spirit uh, meet us and do a work in us that we would see you, Jesus, exactly who you are and how you are, high and lifted up, all because the same spirit that has risen Christ Jesus is the very same spirit that helps us pray to that Savior. And in his, in his merit and in his blood, we cry out, May that free us because we are people who are freed by you because you've walked out of the tomb. So this very day with our feeble faith, may we walk out with you. We pray in your name. Amen. So first, uh, where is prayer? Where is prayer? Uh, I have once committed in an interview uh, the cardinal sin, which is saying um, actually my greatest weakness is one of my greatest. Never say that in an interview. It is the trapdoor word. Uh, you will not get the job if you say that. Um, but here, there's something to it. Because Paul's going from talking about suffering and suffering and suffering, and you should groan with creation, the chorus of creation, because you're moving toward this eschatological reality that, that just means that, that God's up to something in this world that true healing and wholeness will be yours. And because of that future appointment that is true, you groan and you cry out and you feel the, the pain of the world we live in, even though it is getting more beautiful. 
and God's up to something. And after that thought of wholeness of our bodies and of our, all of our personhood, Paul jumps in in verse 26 and says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise, as we, as we hunger for more of what the Lord's doing, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. And there's many assumptions in that. Likewise, the spirit helps. Jesus calls the spirit the helper. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving so the helper will come. He's the helper. Likewise, the spirit helps us that there is a universality to it. We all are recipients and patients who need the work and the medication of the spirit. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. And all of us come with our, with our stories, longing to be tapped into Jesus' story of redemption and glory, longing for our particular weaknesses to be made whole and met by the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And Paul says that to say, he helps us pray. The Spirit helps us pray because when you have connection to God, it's always connected to your weakness and not your strength. Connection with God is born out of a weakness. And what we see in the story of Scripture is not a, a catalog of rules and laws and commandments to do or else you're done. What we see is actually a catalog of stories that tells you true faith is born out of weakness. It's the starting place and it's also the name of the game of all Christianity, but it's absolutely the starting place. Now, in, in the Old Testament, we see the story of Naaman in 2 Kings. It's later on, it's a historical book in the Old Testament, and it's telling us, actually, um, David has started this, this kingdom. And God's made a promise to David, a covenant with David, that he's going to have this beautiful kingdom and this kingship and this dynasty to rule over. And Jesus is going to be that fulfillment, and he is. But actually, it gets a lot worse before it gets better. In 2 Kings and 1 Kings, these historical books tell us the glass half empty version of it, whereas 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles tells us the glass half full of these historical events. And a part of it is the story of Naaman. And Naaman is this um, powerful, influential uh, figure in, in north of Israel and Samaria. And he has leprosy. It's not just this physical flesh-eating disease. It's actually something that is socially isolating because it's so contagion. And so he's isolated, and yet he's so powerful. And uh, Naaman has this servant girl in his house from Israel. And the servant girl says, hey, I know someone who can help you with this. And it can heal you. He says, well, where is it? And says, go to Israel. And so Naaman goes to his boss, and his boss says, he says, can I have the day off, essentially? And his boss says, sure, gives him money to go get healed. And he goes, and he goes to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel rips his robes off when he has, has this request from Naaman to heal him. And he says, I'm not God. I cannot do this for you. And then this prophet Elisha hears of this tearing of the robes, and he enters in the story. And the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 5 says this. It says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man, Naaman, come to me. And he, Naaman, will know that there is a prophet in Israel. As in, where the king failed, the prophet will stand in the gap and help healing happen. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. 
Elisha sent out a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, stand, call the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, uh, sorry, but that the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? He turned and went away in a rage. Now, in a word, all Naaman knows is strength and power. He has people who work for him in his household. But he says to do something and they do it. All he knows is affluence. He goes to his boss and says, can I have some money for some healing? He says, sure, here you go. And he goes with his money to be healed. He goes in his chariots and his horses, which are just um, words that say he's powerful and influential. Everything in this story up to now is marked by Naaman's strength. And everything up to the story now of his strength distracts him from the biggest issue, his weakness. His biggest weakness wasn't, one that, he, wasn't, wasn't that he was strong. It's that he actually didn't know he was weak. And he won't humiliate himself to go into this river of the Jordan and do what this Elisha says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And Naaman will be healed. He will do what Elisha said, and he'll know uh, these things. Later on in the story of the Bible, we hear in the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection, uh, the death of Jesus. And in Mark 4, we hear the story that Jesus is teaching. And then he gets uh, on the boats with his disciples to go to the other side of the shore. And it says this in Mark 4. It says, that day when evening came, he said, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, it was completely calm, and he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. They were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, in a word, many of the disciples were fishermen. They knew how to operate and navigate the waters that often were dicey. And if they weren't fishermen, they'd been on a boat before, and they kind of know their way around it. They're not novices. And yet, they don't go to Jesus until they get to the end of themselves. And all of their strength and all of their knowledge and all of their competence, they're trying to get themselves out of the storm and they finally have to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, don't you care that the boat that we're in is our coffin? And Jesus gets up and says, be muzzled. That's what the translation says. For the disciples, they were operating out of their strength. 
and they finally found reprieve in acknowledging their weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Uh, a few years ago, um, I went on a fishing trip for the day uh, to uh, the Hiawassee River and the metropolis, uh, booming metropolis of uh, Reliance, Tennessee. And so I uh, went there for the day and was, it wasn't a fishing trip, it was a casting trip. I just cast it all day. And uh, finally, later on in the day, I thought, I've got to catch something. This can't be all for naught. And so I went to the middle, uh, began to go and, and jump rocks to the middle uh, of the Hiawassee River. And after a few minutes uh, of fishing out in the middle of the river, I look back and I realize everyone's on the shore except for my, myself and my good friend, Andrew Allred. And um, I also, seeing them, I then see all the rocks that I jumped on are not there anymore. In fact, water is covering those rocks that I was on. And I thought to myself, this is not good. And what had happened was the powerhouse two miles up had begun to leak water, uh, to, to let water out to create power, TVA. Great job, thank you. Uh, and they, the water didn't just come as a wall, it slowly rose to where Andrew Allred and myself found ourselves. Someone took a picture of this, they didn't help us, they just took a picture of this. <laughs> found us swimming for our dear lives. Now, you can hear the record scratch in the t classic TV move of you wonder how I got here and then the whole movie is about getting you to this point. But you don't know in my mind right now, I have this deep-seated fear of water. And mainly it's the, when I'm out of control, water terrifies me. And the thoughts in my head in that moment was not, man, sure it would be nice to get to shore. It was, I have to get to shore to see my wife and my, at the time, newborn daughter. I was at the end of myself. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For Naaman, in the Old Testament, the disciples in the, in the book of Mark, and myself on a river in East Tennessee. I needed, we all needed to feel the disarming power of water to get to the end of ourselves. And we needed to get, feel the disarming power of water to experience the power of Jesus. Friends, where do you feel the disarming power of water in your life? Where Naaman says, I have to get myself into the water seven times of the Jordan to be healed. I have to be humble enough and weak enough to go into the water. For the disciples, they have to acknowledge their weakness enough to say, the water is about to take us over, Jesus. Would you not do anything? The, we the weakness that water does, the disarming power of water of a river from TVA that says, I'm looking to sweep you away from your family. Friends, the place of prayer, where does it begin when you feel the disarming power of whatever the water in your life is? Because it's the birthplace of where you connect with the Savior that's accomplished everything for you. Where is the power, place of weakness in your life? Because the place of prayer begins where? In the place of weakness. So if that's where we begin, what does this prayer life look like? If, if, if indeed, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, what does the help look like? That's the what of prayer, the what of prayer. We see Paul goes on to say in 26 and 27, uh, for we do not know what, what to pray 
for as we ought. But the Spirit helps intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Last week, Paul said, groan because you live in this fallen world, but you're moving toward glory. Groan. And he said, now the Spirit is groaning with you. He's actually groaning for you. Now, God is so committed to meeting his people, he uses language. And it's amazing. It's why every week we open the Bible to say, Lord, what would you have? Meet us where, you, where we are, Holy Spirit, and do much with your spoken word. That's why uh, the word incarnate, God himself, Jesus, is so powerful. He meets his people. He meets us where we are to change us. God is committed to meeting his people and speaking our language. Speaking our language. And when that language fails, God's ideal of meeting his people does not stop. Language is a tool, and we, we take up language, we use language. It's, it's the way that we pray. You, you pray words, and you say God this and God that as you articulate your experience. And when that tool of words fails to talk about your spiritual reality, it's good that spiritual realities don't fail when words do. That is to say, it's a good thing when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit knows what to pray for. It's like when you go to a counselor and you just, you don't, you don't have neat boxes and tidy articulations of, of your experience, but you just vomit everything out there and lay it out there. And it's so good when they say, you know, you know Ben, what, what I'm hearing you say is, they enter into your name and your story, and they're for you, and they're probably a little farther down the road, and they're marked by strength even when you're marked by weakness. That's exactly what the Spirit does for us when we can't even articulate our own station in life. He helps us in our weakness by helping intercede for us to the Father, i.e., he gets us straight to the ear of God that Jesus has purchased for you. Now, I grew up the youngest of six kids, and if we were driving all together, you understand the youngest of six kids is not sitting in the front seat. He crawls over every row of that burgundy suburban to the very back, and if he's lucky to get a seat, or he's sitting in the very back next to the spare tire. And so, that being said, I never had control over the radio dial, or the CDs, or the songs that we chose. And so, um, I was the mercy of whoever's in powerful with the knobs as my ears next to the cram next to the speaker of the suburban. And oftentimes if my mom was driving, 90.3 was put on and we would listen to the automotive Einsteins of Cambridge, Massachusetts, NPR's Car Talk. If you haven't listened to Car Talk, go listen to Car Talk. It's amazing. These MIT educated two brothers uh, pretty much field calls of kind of automotive uh, conundrums, car conundrums, and helps you solve them. And they're absurd and they're crazy, right? Uh, this week I listened to it just to prep for the sermon. Did some commentaries, also did the car talk. But um, a guy said, I, I hit my brake and my radio changes uh, stations. Another guy said, my car was struck by lightning and my mother-in-law was in it. I think actually my mother-in-law was the reason the car was struck, right? It's all these crazy things. Happy Mother's Day. 
Um, but the beautiful thing is all these people call in and they have no idea what to do or how to fix the thing that operates, that their, their whole entire day is affected by. And what these self-deprecating, humorous, Cambridge, Massachusetts men do is in their own automotive language, help articulate their experience. Because they have no idea what this automotive language is, really. It's exactly what the Spirit of the living God is committed to do for you as his beloved. Because when you can't quite curb the things in your world, make sense or fix what's going on in your life, what you do is in prayer is you say, God, I can't even, I don't know, up from down. He says, I know that. And I've never been more for you and I've never been more with you. And if you ever wonder that, just look at Jesus. What is prayer? When our words fail, the Spirit of God does not let the, the limitations of word limit his work and scope of making sure you know you are his beloved. So where do words fail? In your life, where do words fail? In your weakness, where do words fail? Where do you long for true deep medicine that's hard to find? Now, maybe a helpful litmus test is not so much where you're speechless. That's an easy one, but certainly where you're speechless. A litmus test is maybe more easily, where are you running up against, against inexplainability? Whether you can't quite make sense of your world right now, it doesn't, the pieces don't make sense. Why, God? A genuine question of why, Lord? Or maybe you're just tired of trying to explain it, trying to make sure you're on top of it all because there's a fatigue in trying to understand and have the mind of God when the ways of God are played out. God has not abandoned his people. And you know that because the Spirit says, even when you feel most alone in your weakness and in your wordlessness, I will get you to the ear Jesus has purchased for you so you will be heard. What is prayer? It's that. And lastly, why do we pray? There's, there's a thousand different reasons we could talk about, and, and, but specifically with this kind of Romans 8, 26, 27 in mind, why do we pray? Paul, Paul rounds this thought out, and he's saying, even when you have these unintelligible words, unarticulated words, the Spirit will get you to the ear of the Father. And he says also, prayer will do something to you. Because when you operate out of weakness and when you operate in your weakness in connection to God, longing to be with the one who has redeemed you and loved you and sought after you and left the 99 for you, when you, when you go after that kind of God, what he will do is change you in prayer. When you operate out of weakness in prayer, he will change you. In the verse 27, it says this. It says, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now the question is, what is the will of God? Cancel your lunch plans. Um, we're going to talk about that. What is the will of God? In a word, 
quickly. Jesus said, I have come, in John 6, 38, he says, I've come not to do my work. He says, in, in John 6, 38, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I've come to do the Father's will. And while he says that at the beginning of a gospel in John, John 6, later on, the closer he gets to the cross, the more amplified Jesus' prayer life is. That is to say, where there is the will of God, the practice of prayer is always follows and always is evident. To the point where when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's about to go to the cross, he's about to be arrested and go through this deep humiliation, even as his whole life has been a humiliation. He says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus's commitment is the will of God. And the will of God is Jesus's commitment. So when you wonder, what is the will of God? Why should I pray? And why should I make the will of God be more present and more reality because of my prayer life? It's because Jesus has accomplished everything for you. He has indeed purchased that ear with your name on it and no one else's. And there will be no interference as you get to that very ear. The will of God is the purchasing power of Jesus to say you are his. And because you are his, as you lean into prayer, you're leaning into the fact that I am my father's. That's why he says, here's how you pray in Matthew 6, our father. It's your father. The power of prayer is that he engages you. And when you pray, you don't just get stuff. You are changed in prayer because you get God. And Tim Keller says this, he says, prayer is the only entryway, the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, which, which is this, not doing better, not doing less, not trying to stop being weak. Deep change is the reordering of loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything you need to do and be in life. In our weakness, it's good to know that we're heard. That Jesus hears us, and he intercedes for us, and he goes to bat for us. And also, it's good to know that when we pray, we're not just heard, but we're changed. And Jesus has walked out of the tomb so that you would be changed. Settle for no less of an Easter than that. And the Spirit makes that possible because the Spirit says, I see you where you are. And the Father longs for you to be his more and more and more. And prayer helps you say and believe, even amid the doubt and the rigor, I am my beloved's. If I can just get to my dad, I'll be okay. Let's pray.
Lord, your power is what we know in our weakness. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. And so as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12, may we revel and lean into our weakness all the more because we feast on your power there. Where we are like Naaman and don't want to walk the road of humility, would you bend our knee? Where we are like the disciples and we're filled with fear and we're almost taken over, would you give us hope of your presence that's right there with us? and the peace it brings over the storms of our life. For these things and more, King Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, help the practice of prayer be a thing that's so integrated in us, not because it's an action, but because, Lord, we have an identity that says, if, if I can get to my dad, man, what a joy it will be. May we live as a people marked with joy because that's the Christian life you have for us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. That says, if, if I can get to my dad, man, what a joy it will be. May we live as a people marked with joy because that's the Christian life you have for us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.